contracts, salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the business of sports with Andrew Brandt. Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Special guest, someone I've been waiting to show you, Lee Steinberg, the preeminent football agent of our time, perhaps, going back to 1975 with Steve Barkowski, number one pick in the draft. Now he's got Pat Mahomes, among other players right now, ready to take over for the Kansas City Chiefs. He goes through so many stories, so many ways for young people to get into sports. Really a classic interview coming up with the preeminent NFL agent of our time, Lee Steinberg. First, this episode is sponsored by Matt and Bow Jeans. This is a beautifully handcrafted jean that transforms denim. It makes it look beautiful. These are comfortable jeans. I'm wearing them now. They're just, you feel the difference when you put them on. It's a great looking, classic, clean style, a great value for the money. And it's got this home try-on program where you get a prepaid, pre-printed shipping label. You send it back if you don't want it. There's so many styles to choose from, washes, fits, just find your perfect jeans. How do you get them? Well, just enter promo code BUSINESS, B-U-S-I-N-E-S-S, my my name on my podcast, BUSINESS, all caps. You visit mottenbow.com, enter promo code BUSINESS at checkout, and you'll get 15% off your first purchase. Again, spell it out for you, M-O-T-T-A-N-D-B-O-W.com, 15% off your first purchase, Mottenbow jeans, guys, you will love them. Hearty welcome to my friend and former colleague when I was an agent. Lee Steinberg is the guest on the Business of Sports. Lee, welcome. Thank you, Andrew. I think when you say forerunner, it just means that I'm old. <laughs> You're older. Let's just say it that way. <laughs> well, this will be my 45th draft next year. You know, when I was a student at Stanford University, one of my uh, goals was to get a meeting with you. And I came to your house, and unfortunately you had to be away that day. I met with Mike Sullivan, your partner. But that was probably 1982. What year in the business was that for you? That would have been year 13 or 14. Okay. Oh, wait, 1982. Uh, I started in 1975, so that would have been about my eighth year. Okay. And I think a lot of people want to know how, I mean, so many people want to get in the agent's business now, which is so different than it was back then, but how did you happen upon this this life? Well, I was in Berkeley, it was the late 60s, so I was student body president when Ronald Reagan was governor, and every time we demonstrated, he cracked down. I learned everything I needed to learn about negotiating from negotiating with Ronald Reagan. Hmm. Um, then I became a, a grad counselor working my way through law school in an undergrad uh, dorm, and they moved the freshman football team into the dorm, and one of the students was the quarterback, Steve Bartkowski. So I had graduated from law school in 73, traveled around the world for a while, was choosing between different legal offers, and Bartkowski had been the very first player picked in the first round of the 1975 draft, and he asked me to represent him. So there I was, brimming with legal experience, <laughs> and I uh, went on and we got lucky. We got the largest rookie contract in NFL history. And, Andrew, when we got to the Atlanta airport to uh, sign the contract the next uh, day, 
there were cleave lights flashing in the sky like for a movie premiere. <laughs> a huge crowd was pressed up against a police line, and the first thing we heard was, we interrupt the Johnny Carson show to bring you a special news bulletin. Steve Bartkowski, his attorney, Lee Steinberg, have just arrived at the Atlanta airport. We switch you live for an in-depth interview. <laughs> so I looked at him probably the way that Dorothy looked at Toto when they got to Munchkin land and said, <laughs> I know we're not in Berkeley anymore. And, and, and I saw the intense idol worship and veneration that athletes are held in communities across the country. And my dad has had two core values. One was to treasure relationships, especially family. And the second was to try to make a meaningful difference in the world and help people who couldn't help themselves. And I, saw in that moment had an epiphany that athletes, if they retraced their roots and went back to the high school, collegiate, and professional communities that helped shape them, could set up a scholarship fund at the high school or Boys and Girls Club, could do something to bring them back into contact with the alums uh, at their university, so a Troy Aikman endowed a full scholarship at UCLA. And then a charitable program at the professional level using the leading business figures, political figures, and uh, community leaders on an advisory board. So that would be like work done when he did his Homes for the Holidays uh, program where he just put the 167th single mother and her family into the first home they'll ever own by making the down payment and having Home uh, Depot or someone outfitted. And, and you talk about how you ramped up so quickly, starting out like with Steve Bartkowski as a, as a doormate and moving on to the most preeminent practice in the country and all the quarterbacks, like you mentioned, Troy and Steve Young and so many others. Uh, I guess it's, it's kind of an open-ended question, but do you attribute that success to the things you're talking about in terms of making sure life outside the game is taking care of and giving back? Do you think you just amassed a reputation that fed on itself? Was there something about your firm compared to the other others in the industry? Uh, talk about your rise to success during that time. Well, eventually, uh, I'd represented 62 first-round draft picks in the NFL, and, and the very first pick in the first round, eight different years, um, I attribute it to listening skills because if you can put yourself in the heart and mind of another human being, if you can peel back the layers of the onion so that men who don't always share so easily will reveal what their true priorities are, how they feel about short-term economic gain or long-term economic security or family, geographical location, spiritual values, um, making a difference in the world, endorsements, being a starter. If you can actually get someone to prioritize uh, those values and create enough trust to allow someone to open themselves up, uh, once you understand someone's deepest anxieties and fears and their greatest hopes and dreams, then you've got the ability to make contact at a much deeper level. Um, and so we would profile players. I was looking for players that were brighter, that had some social conscience, um, because I knew that this program where 
you know, eventually through the Cherry Foundation, Daron Cherry ends up with the Anheuser-Busch distributorship in Kansas City, or Earl Campbell ends up with uh, a, a, an extraordinary meatpacking company, or where Bruce Smith ends up owning part of one of the big luxury hotels in Washington, D.C., in a construction company, uh, or a Desmond Howard ends up uh, on college game day, that for the right athlete, the ability to leave uh, a legacy through charity and giving and the ability to do preparation for second career uh, was was really key. And then, of course, one of the key skills in this is being able to understand the scouting system well enough to help a player uh, emerge as, uh, as high a draft pick as he can. So... Um, I think it was profiling players, listening to them, and then making sure that you had a comprehensive program that got them drafted to the top of the draft with a smooth, uh, hopefully, Hall of Fame career. We have 10 players in the Hall of Fame is probably the key. One thing I noticed in dealing with agents from the other side uh, in negotiating contract with the Packers for 10 years is that and I'm sure you'll agree with this, the players represent the agents as much as the agent represents the players, uh, the kind of person they are, the kind of character they have, the kind of uh, work ethic they have. I always found that to be very similar. And uh, it's a testament to you. I know I dealt with players that represented by you, such as Amon Green, uh, Jamal Reynolds, and, of course, um, Bubba Franks. And they were, they were good people, and uh, they were easy to deal with. They were intelligent, and I think that's reflective of your group. It's, it just seems like I always felt like the agent and the player are, are kind of one in that representation. You're so right, Andrew. The, every time you represent someone, you're cutting up a little bit of your life to spend with them. And so for me, belief in the integrity and quality of the young man was really key. The other thing is this. It came to me very early that the real battle in uh, sports was not labor versus management. And when we were having ugly uh, public negotiations for a draftee or a veteran, all it was doing was pushing fans away, making the player look greedy, making the uh, team look uh, 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 intransigent, and pushing away the the fans, uh, or if we had a big collective bargaining agreement that pitted millionaires mm-hmm. against billionaires, uh, again, there's no way fans could relate to those economics. So I went to owners and said, look, we've got the big stars. We have to stop this public negotiating. We have to stop this uh, deadlock and holdouts and all the rest of it. Let's focus on the brand. Can we blow out the television contract by opening it up to multiple bidders uh, and exponentially increase that revenue? Can you build new stadia that have multiple revenue streams? Can you figure out how to do merchandising and sponsorships? Can you use the Internet? Can you create uh, television networks like the NFL networks? Why don't we spend some time talking about that? because we are unified in the desire to 
pull more money into the game. So I never looked at an owner or a general manager as an adversary. I looked at them as a partner in building mm-hmm. the brand of professional football. And the negotiation part of it ought to be smooth and easy. And if you have that trust factor with people in management and you, they know you're not trying to embarrass them, you're not going to brag about the economics of a deal, you're not going to put them in a bad situation, things are much smoother. Are there negotiations that stand out? I mean, there's so many over the years, ones that sort of jump to the forefront when you think about some of your deals. Well, back in 1984, I brought Warren Moon back into the NFL, and Mm -hmm. he had been in Canada for six years. And we had timed it out so that the USFL was there and bidding, the CFL was there and bidding, the NFL was bidding, and here you had a quarterback in his prime coming back to the league, and it was a very heady tour of about 14 different cities, and he ended up getting the largest uh, contract in in the NFL because he was totally free agent. Later uh, that month came uh, Steve Young, who came out at the vortex of the fight between the USFL and the NFL. And we ended up with this amazing $42 million contract that made front page headlines. Dan Rather led the evening news off with it. Um, And, of course, there were always some negotiations. And we had a practice that had 60 baseball players, 17 basketball players, Mm -hmm. boxers like Lennox Lewis and Oscar De Loya, uh, the U.S. Uh, team in the World Cup in soccer. But in football, my major um, motivation that somehow I was being too successful was interacting with the owner of the Cincinnati Bengals, Mike Brown. And, <laughs> I have some Mike uh, Brown stories, too. Go ahead. <laughs> and I had the first-round uh, draft pick of the Bengals in 1987, 1992, 1994, 1995, and 1999. And I swear, if I had represented astronauts, Mike Brown would be commissioner of the moon somehow. <laughs> and uh, so... Uh, at that particular point, it, it wasn't like today with this salary cap where teams come out and offer, in their very first offer, the most they can ever pay a player. Then right. there were huge gaps, and there was no, you could not go to training camp as a player unless you had a signed contract. So there was no ability to, to sort of have your player there uh, going ahead with normal progress while the negotiations were taking place. He had to be there, or he was called a holdout, which I always thought was a freeze-out. And, um, and with Mike Brown, um, he, either it was easy, like when Kajana Carter was the first pick in the draft, and he came from uh, Westerville outside of Columbus, and Mike had a soft spot for Ohio State. And then I had uh, Dan Wilkinson, who was the first pick in the first round, and he uh, was at Ohio State. Those were easy, mm. but the other ones, uh, who were David Klingler and Akili Smith and, uh, and Jason Buck, were uh, some of the most excruciating moments uh, that I'd spent. A root canal <laughs> would be a pleasant change of pace from those negotiations. He was tough. I mean, there are a lot of tough ones out there, but he was pulling teeth, as you said. Um, 
I give you God a credit for all those negotiations with him. I, 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 and since you mentioned that, I have to go about the other side. I mean, in someone that you would think, not giving away the money, but just felt like these negotiations were easy. These negotiations were uh, painless. And I mean, I'm throwing out names. Would that be like a Jerry Jones? Would that be like so, an Al Davis? Yes. So okay. in both of those cases, um, there came a new generation of owners in the NFL who had built businesses that were billion-dollar businesses who had bought teams at what then seemed like high values, and they were promotion-oriented. And we have the progress of the league to uh, credit people like Bob Kraft, people like uh, Jerry Jones, uh the old regime in San Francisco with uh, Carmen policy. These were progressive thinkers who wanted, did not begrudge players the money. They just saw it as a fixed uh, cost so that I had, uh, or some of the older guard, like the, like the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Roonies, um, where I had their quarterback, uh, for like 15 or 20 years and there were built up relationships so if it was Ralph Wilson of the Bills or the Roonies or Jerry Jones or anybody at uh, the 49ers um, those negotiations uh, tended to tended to be smooth because again we saw ourselves in partnership so if it was Ralph Wilson and I had Thurman Thomas and Bruce Smith you know we were in partnership very akin to today where we have Patrick Mahomes is going to start his uh, tenure at Kansas City, and I've known Clark Hunt since he was a ball boy and was very close with his father. So the whole tenor of those negotiations was much more collegial uh, uh, otherwise. And, and that's what I've tried to teach to a younger generation. We have a three-pronged educational uh, program. One is an agent academy where we teach life skills. So you go to law school, Andrew, you go to business school, and they teach you the principles of those fields, but they don't right. teach you very much as practical. So in an agent um, academy, which we've done about 15 of all across the country from uh, New York to Chicago to Philadelphia, from Indianapolis to uh, Dallas and Houston. Um, for those, um, we actually have uh, the players, uh, we, we divide the teams or agencies, and they have to recruit a player. So in Dallas, they had to recruit Patrick Mahomes, and he was sitting there, you know, with, with parents. And, and we just did one with uh, Jayon Brown, who plays for Tennessee. So they actually have to learn recruiting skills, listening skills. We do a negotiation seminar where half of them play general managers and half of them play owners. Um, we do a damage control seminar where they have to defend someone. And we teach branding and marketing and uh, how to set up a charitable foundation. And then we have sports career conferences, which we just did in Dallas. Um, and then finally, a new program that's uh, up where you can take uh, 85 modules with the biggest experts in sports. Um, so you have Jacob Ullman from uh, Fox Television who actually hires the uh, commentators there, and he 
explains how to get a job in in uh, uh, television. So the whole goal here is to is to mentor a new generation of sports professionals. They can work for teams, leagues. They can uh, work for uh, a college and athletic department. They can work. For in facilities management, in sports marketing, in sports television. They can be an agent. There's so many jobs. And you go to, I've spoken on 80 college campuses. You go to those campuses and people are uh, completely mesmerized by the concept they could work in sports. So we've got the online education course, Agent Academy, and the sports career conferences. You know, it's so interesting because you and I share that in educating the next wave of sports people. I do it along with your former partner who endowed a program I run, Jeffrey Mora at the Morad Center at Villanova. So we share that passion. I, I, I always think that when I hear young people say, I love sports, I'm mesmerized by sports, I want to work with it, I get frustrated because I think they should be more specific. Everyone loves sports. That's not going to get them anywhere with an employer. And I tell them to drill deep and find their special sauce and find their differentiator. What are things that you tell young people wanting to be agents in terms of advice, in terms of how to separate themselves from the pack? So it's about branding. And right. it's about doing something that puts someone outside the square. So I'll give you an example. We got a Sports Illustrated uh, that showed up in the mail at our firm one day. And on the cover of it, uh, was a young man standing with his picture next to me. And it was Sports Illustrated, Andrew. It was the font, the pictures. It was identical. But every story was about how our firm had prospered since we had hired this young lawyer. And he had cleverly uh, emulated hmm. Sports Illustrated with, with uh, uh, all these highlights. So what did that show us? It showed us that he had done research into our firm. It showed us that he was able to use visual skills to, for storytelling. It showed us that he had thought outside the square. Um, I was speaking down at Baylor, and I mentioned that I'd gone, because uh, I was crazy about Diet Dr. Pepper, I'd gone to the Dr. Pepper Hall of Fame. And what showed up in the mail was a bottle of Diet Dr. Pepper, only instead of established 1800, it said 1975, which is when our firm started. And it had a picture on the front with this young man and myself, and you turned around to the back of it, and it said, innovative, these were all the values that were in there, innovative, 100%, passionate, 100%, resourceful, 100%, driven, 100%. And so you you could already see that this was someone who knew how to differentiate himself from the pack, who was Mm -hmm. clever enough to to have uh, uh, done this. And we hired both the people I'm talking about. So Mm -hmm. it's it's coming up with putting yourself in the heart and mind of the potential boss or industry and figuring out how you add value how you um, uh, contribute to the whole. And that group of, uh, of creative and resourceful young people are going to find a way. And as you said, 
focus in on your own values, do an internal uh, inventory, and figure out, do you want to work for a team or a players association or sports television or facilities management or sports training? Um, what is it that will ultimately fulfill you? So it's clarity as to goals. And that sort of segues into what you've seen the changes in the industry. I mean, you talk about starting in 1975, and here we are. What is the calculation? We're in our 43rd year since then. Um, <laughs> well, you have to count both years, Andrew, so it gets a year <laughs> later. <laughs> okay. That's a new math. Obviously, okay. I just, you know, I know there's more. There's uh, 300 agents taking the NFLPA agent exam this week. Uh, hoping to pass. There's 800 and something, 825, I believe, is the last count of certified agents. What's going on in the business? I mean, you're in your second act here with a new firm, and you've got Patrick Mahomes and Paxton Lynch. And is, it, is it the same as always in proving yourself and recruiting and, and showing players your value? Are there changes? Is conglomeration yeah. of groups like CAA changing the game? Tell me about that. Right. So the first thing that happened is there was a roll-up of independent firms by groups like CAA or Rock Nation or uh, Octagon uh, uh, that bought individual agencies with the purpose of building out a big marketing arm and then owning a television project, you know, owning a new app. In other words, that's where the profitability came from. And so these are, you know, international mega agencies. Um, so it makes it difficult for more boutiques. Uh, there was a, a real change in football in the sense that, that um, taking a rookie now involves paying for training him. And so all the young draftees go off to a training center in football in January and February. That can cost an agent fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. The fee was reduced to three percent, and the the unless you specified three percent, one and a half percent. And so the economics don't work for most people. And so what you see is that for most people who enter the field unless it's a sideline, the economics just don't work because putting twenty, $25,000 into a rookie who then goes in the fifth round, uh, you know, with a fee of $5,000 obviously leads to, to uh, economic travail. So the economics have changed. Baseball, much better economics at 5%, basketball at uh, 4%. So, and in basketball, many agents don't even charge uh, right. for the first contract because it's slotted. And in football, it's basically slotted also. So that's right. a major change. Another is the capacity to deal with a generation brought up on uh, big screen computers with color and sound and fast cutting uh, who are Instagramming and Snapchatting, and uh, it's subversive of attention span. So you have younger people who you better get it out in the first five minutes <laughs> because otherwise uh, their attention uh, may fade. You mm. have social media, which is uh, can be a, a powerful branding tool. So the way that 
when you walk in to do an endorsement, they ask how many Twitter followers, how many Instagram right. followers. Um, so that's a fundamental change. But it also exposes an athlete to the potential for all sorts of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, danger. You also have such a density of reporting uh, press and media now that a player will go out and he's a highly drafted quarterback and in the first two games he throws some picks and all of a sudden he's a judge to be a bust. <laughs> and whereas in old time sports that would have been, you know, three years. Um, right. the, tr- the training techniques, the ability to, to create robo-athletes is greatly expanded. When I started, an offensive uh, uh, tackle might be 250 pounds, and now it's very hard to play unless you're over 300. Mm-hmm. Um, it, people uh, smoked and ate big slabs of beef for training <laughs> table uh, and got fat in the offseason and had to work it off in training camp. That doesn't happen anymore. The contemporary athlete is in shape all year round because they can't afford not to be. Yeah, it's a couple more questions. One about the the player side, and one about the teams, the league side. You talked about your individual negotiations, what agents can do for players, some of the differences you've made for players. What's been your relationship with the collective agent for players, the NFLPA, the union that certifies these agents, and how has that changed through the different leadership from Gene Upshaw to now Dumoris Smith? Well, I think that uh, younger agents who have gone to these uh, agent seminars are very rebellious and uh, resentful. They have a certain feeling that the goal of groups like the NFLPA is eventually to to eliminate all agentry and to mm-hmm. make it as difficult as possible. Now, I happen to live through a time where they had a man named Ed Garvey who was head of right. the union. and. He was very upfront that he hated Asians and he didn't <laughs> want them represented. So I, I look at this with a little uh, perspective. The relationship between Demore Smith and agents is not a strong one. Um, and uh, uh, part of the resentment comes from the fact that in 2010 in football, the player share of the overall gross had grown to 55%. And the owner share was 45%. Well, when they walked in in 2010 to negotiate the new collective bargaining agreement, magically, somehow the numbers had reversed. And the owners came out with 53% of the gross, and the players had 47% of the gross. In that, 8 to 10% is hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. So it hasn't been a, a wonderful relationship. It should be better. I've tried to promote for years the fact that agents really um, share more in common with each other. There are so many athletes, uh, and yet it's very hard to convince an agent that someone else in the field has the slightest um, value, talent, or skill. And um, (laughs) so instead of supporting each other in negotiations and supporting each other, it's like crabs in a barrel. And I think that's very sad. Really... Agents ought to be collegial with each other. Um, we used to have a group called ARPA, which was the Association of Representatives of Professional Athletes, which was agents meeting together. This mm-hmm. was years ago. So um, 
um, I'd like to see a day when there was really strong understanding between the Players Association and agents and collegiality between agents. Um, you know, I still send people who do good contracts uh, a thank you notes. You mentioned Jeff Morad. I, I pass that on to him. So he once sent a, a congratulatory note to another baseball agent and uh, who quickly put it in his recruiting packet for <laughs> new clients. <laughs> what a cutthroat business it is. And on the other side of things, Lee, I, I just, I, you know, the sport that we cover and, and that we worked in for so long, here we are today, the Packers financials have come out. The league is incredible shape, despite the carping out there about player protests, about concussions, about ratings, whatever it is, it's still king. Uh, and it seems to only be getting better. How do you feel about the strength of the NFL? And if you, what if, what is, sorry, their biggest threat, their biggest challenge going forward? So really, whenever you hear people talk about declining TV ratings or uh, declining attendance, obviously when the President of the United States takes on pro football, it's going to take a little hit. But let's have some perspective. We have never had a sport in this country that was not only the most popular sport, as the NFL is, but the most popular form of televised entertainment. Every week, three of the top five or five of the top uh, ten Nielsen nighttime-rated football games outrate 97 other forms of televised entertainment, NCIS and Blackish and Two and a Half Men and Ended mm -hmm. with the Stars. So you have to understand this country is in a love affair with professional football, and right after that, college football. That's absolutely amazing. So it's, it's our national passion now, and every part of it is going great guns. The existential threat is uh, the, the specter of concussion. Um, mm -hmm. I've held 14 concussion conferences, and uh, I come to the conclusion every time a lineman hits a lineman at the line of scrimmage at the inception of a play, it produces a low-level sub-concussive event. So an offensive lineman who walks out of football can have as many as 10,000 sub-concussive events none of which have been diagnosed, none of which he's aware of, but the aggregate almost certainly will do uh, uh, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, uh, memory loss, dementia, and depression. Now, let's say 50% of the moms in this country understand these facts and tell their teenage boys, you can play any sport but not tackle football. It won't kill football, Andrew, but what it will do is change the socioeconomics so that mm -hmm. you only get those people who need to play knowing they might have brain damage through privation. So to me, I love football. I'd like to, I think it teaches great values, but we have to be very aggressive now on new helmetry and mm -hmm. uh, different blocking and tackling techniques and uh, a way to cure the brain. The good news is there's a profit incentive in all of this. There's a profit incentive in protecting the brain, healing the brain, uh, nutraceuticals and pharmaceuticals that can prophylactically protect the brain or they can uh, heal it once it's done. This has to be solved 
Um, it's never going to be 100% safe, but it can be much safer. And it ought to be the number one uh, uh, research and development goal of professional football. I agree with that. Uh, I want your comment on what I see as the number one threat to the game, which is when you talked about younger people having options, how to maintain and attract younger viewers. I just think this is the challenge for all sports leagues. People don't have three hours to sit around. Oh, and what yeah. what are they going to do to do? What are they going to do now? They've started with the in-screen advertising. They've, gambling could be part of it on, on gaming and things like that. But what are your thoughts on that? Well, I wrote an article for Sports Business Journal some time back. And what I said is if you're trying to keep millennials who mm -hmm. um, multitask in a stadium sitting there static, the first thing I do in football is eliminate instant replay. It's just a waste of time. Nothing happens. It's dead time if you're at home. It's dead time if you're in the game. I mean, you can very quickly, human error has always been a part of it. And it, uh, what it does is you have an exciting play. It's a touchdown. The fans are ecstatic. But wait, <laughs> now we'll have right. five to ten minutes of dead time where we're trying to establish the certainty. But what I said was, what if we put a screen in front of every seat, and down one side we'll run your gambling debts, uh, uh, bets, and down the other side we'll run your fantasy uh, uh, your fantasy bets. And underneath you have the ability to talk smack because you can text to people inside or outside the stadium. And we'll allow the fans to vote on one play call, which the uh, coach has to call. And we'll allow the fans to vote on one referee overturn. And when you log in on this uh, screen in front of you, you can order from the snack bar. And you can be fed a steady diet of other games, of, uh, of puzzles and quizzes and, and challenges, all of which ultimately monetize. So my point is, you're going to have to have Stadia to watch the games uh, uh, there, which offer options for interactivity, because this is right. what uh, young people are used to doing. You can't expect them to sit there for four hours in a seat, static. Uh, and it also is the creation of zones around a stadium that I would call Sports Town. We tried to do one here in Anaheim that have interactive rides, mm -hmm. that have alternative uh, uh, entertainment things that are inside the stadium and contiguous to the stadium. So it becomes a happening. You have to sell fan experience. I'll let you go on this, Lee. I, I'll let you talk about a client that I'm fascinated by that obviously you just mentioned earlier taking over this this year. Pat Mahomes, the, the Chiefs traded quite a mortgage to get him, and then he sat all year, except for one game, I believe, behind Alex Smith. Seems like a special guy. Seems to have a little bit of the guy I worked with for 10 years named Favre in him. I'll let you talk about Pat Mahomes. So I've been doing everything I can to spin down the hype on Patrick Mahomes <laughs> because it's being built up so high, you know, and his general manager says he's a great player, but he's only played one game. Um, so uh, we don't want it where if he throws a single uh, interception, you know, Alex Smith wouldn't have done that, where if he doesn't complete a pass, he's a failure, right? So the bar has been set way too high. But I will tell you this. This is someone so built for the game, growing up with uh, 
with his father, who's a major league pitcher for 10 years, his godfather, Latroy Hawkins, uh, who pitched for 20 years. He sat there, you know, in the infield taking pepper with, um, uh, you know, uh, with A-Rod. And uh, so he understands the price you have to pay. He's so smart. He's like a sponge. He just wants to learn and learn and learn. He has a freakish arm. He can Mm -hmm. do things, Andrew. They put him back at ESPN, and they have this uh, huge um, walkover that you have to – they want you to try to throw the ball over. Well, it's hard enough to get the ball over, and a lot of people can't do it. Sitting behind it was a seat with a dummy in it. And Patrick not only threw the ball over the top, he put the ball into the dummy's lap. Hmm. who does that? Uh, so you're going to see some amazing things out of him. I just hope people will, uh, you know, give him a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a break. He's going to be a great quarterback uh, one day. But young quarterbacks go through a learning and maturation process. Uh, but, you know, look for uh, he's something special. And he's in good hands. I mean, I, you and I know Andy Reid so well, what he did with Brett, what he did with my former client, Matt Hasselbeck, what he's done with so oh many God. great players. Would you believe so, a marriage made in heaven? <laughs> Lee, great to have you on and wish you all the best with your Agent Academy, with your seminars. You're doing so much uh, good for young people, as I try to do as well. I think uh, we're creating a path that maybe wasn't there when we were coming up, and I, I'm proud of that. Well, Andrew, you've been a great role model uh, for tons of people, both through your writings, through uh, your on television, your teaching, and all the rest of it. And uh, kudos to you for enhancing our profession. That means a lot. Uh, thanks, Lee. And, and thanks so much for being on the podcast. I'll have you back soon if you wish. My uh, pleasure. Anytime. Really hope you enjoyed the interview with Lee Steinberg. Just a classic as he's been around the business for so long and has seen so much and represented so many top players. Still at it today, so many years later, 45 years later when he started. Hope you enjoyed it. You can listen to all the podcasts on iTunes. Give us a good rating. Stitcher, tune in, RossTucker.com, wherever you hear your podcasts. Follow me on Twitter, at Andrew Brandt. And I'll be back next week with another edition of The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Thanks for listening to The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional insider insight by listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and College Draft Podcast, all at RossTucker.com or wherever podcasts are found.